This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. Bringing you a common sense and fresh perspective to creating a just society. This is Common Sense on Social Justice. You'll get equipped with the tools you need to carry out social justice right where you are. Now, here's the host of Common Sense on Social Justice, Michael Davis. And thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad you are here today. Uh, And joining us in this conversation, we've been going through the compendium of the social doctrine of the church as we learn to, uh, social teaching of the church, rather, as we learn how to create a just society right where we are in our own neighborhood, our own area, right where we live and where life happens uh, in front of us. And uh, today we are in chapter eight. And even though this is a document is created by the Pontifical Council of the U.S. Catholic Bishops, it's still pertinent to everyone, uh, no matter what your religious persuasion may be, because it is universal. And by the way, that is the meaning of the word Catholic, universal. These are the universal laws that apply to all people, no matter uh, what their background is. And so uh, today we're in chapter 8, talking about political vision as we get into these particulars, how to, to live out justice right where we are. And obviously politi- the political discussion has to happen at some point in this in chapter eight, and we're going to divide this up into different episodes, but today we're just getting a summary of the political vision and talking about politics. What fun, Right. For me, it's like an eye roll every time somebody wants to get into a political discussion with me because it seems to never end well, but that's the way it is. But as we begin chapter eight of this compendium, we're going to look at how political community functions in a just world. And to begin, I have to mention my political perspective so you know where I am coming from politically. Uh, I am uh, an orthodox anarchist. I've been trying to play around with the word anarchist uh, because a lot of people uh, unfortunately attach the word anarchist to to things like Antifa, burning down buildings, overthrowing governments, and all that. And that's actually not what a true anarchist is. There have been many saints, actually, in history and mystics who have been anarchists, but not in the sense of the way we kind of perceive the word now. So I'm currently to try to explain to people I'm an orthodox anarchist uh, in the spirit of people like Dorothy Day and different ones like that. And you may ask, what in the world is an orthodox anarchist? And it means that I am part of a long historical line of individuals who are not interested in being ruled by any government who are not interested in overthrowing the government. Rather, they live their lives in community and parallel to the empire. 
They refuse to give their allegiance to any empire. Rather, they seek to live in love toward their neighbor without laws demanding how that happens or doesn't happen. So that is where I stand in my own uh, political life. So any look at government authority in this section is an attempt to see the wisdom of how to run a nation in a world of people who have to have government because of their refusal or lack of knowledge of how to run their lives without needing to be controlled. The fact is, there are individuals, many throughout history, who, first of all, do not need government controlling them because they know how to live their life well in in a society of humans without laws. They know how to do that without being told what to do or what not to do. But most of humanity can't seem to do that. So we have these governments that rise. And then, of course, some of those governments turn into empires. And so with that in mind, uh, we have to have a discussion of government. And how does the political vision happen in a just world? Now, when I say to explain myself a little bit and explain others who are in this line of orthodox uh, anarchist, it doesn't mean that we are against authority or that we don't understand the value of having leaders in a community. It just means that we live our lives parallel to the empire, meaning outside of the empire, but within it's uh, within sightseeing distance of the people in the empire. And it means that we're not interested in overthrowing any government. We're not interested in any of those things. What we're interested in is freely living our lives to love our neighbor and refusing to give in to hyper control of our lives of government. So that's my what I need to say at the beginning. But the fact is most humans are oblivious how to live in a society without being told how to by big brother. And this is the sad fact. So how do we create in that reality? How do we create a just political body? Uh, There's several things I want to look at today as we discover that. And the first thing I want to look at is Israel's beginning. And again, remember, I'm springboarding off of the compendium of the Pontifical Council. So I'm, I'm going off of their talking points. So I'm not creating my own original talking points. I'm taking their talking points and then putting my perspective into it and, and trying to put it on a level that you can understand. So in this discussion day, let's look at Israel's beginning. We're going to look at Israel's history from the Old Testament. We're going to look at in the New Testament at St. Paul's vision, Jesus's vision, all these things. We're going to put it together and try to understand what does a just political environment look like. So let's look at Israel's beginning. In its infancy, Israel, the nation of Israel, had no king. They didn't have a government set up like we think of. Uh, They were simply led by prophets. The prophets would lead the country and and sometimes judges would lead the country, but they were a deeply spiritual people who had prophets who gave them messages from the Creator. Now, 
When I say they were a deeply spiritual people, that does not mean that they were perfect and that they were a bunch of saints. But what I mean is that they believed deeply in the spiritual element and the spiritual reality of life. And so they accepted the fact that prophets would lead them politically. They were enlightened enough to listen to spiritual guides. But the time came when they wanted to be like the other nations around them and have a king. So Samuel the prophet in the Old Testament warned them that if you want a king, there's going to be consequences. And even after he warned them, they still demanded a king, which is kind of the way we are as humans. We get told the bad news of our choices, and we still make those choices anyways. But Samuel the prophet warned them there's going to be three basic consequences if you want an organized government led by a king. And the first is there's going to be heavy taxes. You don't have a king now, so you don't pay heavy taxes. You don't have an organized government, so you don't pay heavy taxes. But when you get that, you're going to pay heavy taxes. Hello? Every nation that's got a big government, guess what they've got to do is pay heavy taxes. Secondly, Samuel warned them that your children are going to belong to the king and will be sent by the king to war. So the king will send your sons, he said, to war which does not currently happen. We don't go to war because we don't have a government to go to war with, which was interesting to me that wars in Israel didn't technically start, especially organized wars, until they had that government in place. But it's interesting that Samuel said he's going to send your sons to war. No, Samuel didn't say he's going to send his own sons to war, your sons, which is interesting because in the United States where I live, it's not the Congress and their children going to war, it's our children that they're sending to war. And then besides heavy taxes and war, the third warning that Samuel gives the people, if you want this organized government, there's just going to be a general heaviness of your life with the government looking over your shoulder. Well, we've got that constantly around us, don't we? Police everywhere looking over our shoulder, cameras looking over our shoulder, now we have the internet, you know, the government's tracking our movements. You know, you have a sm smartphone. Trust me, you're being tracked by that smartphone. And so, yeah, those are the consequences of these big organized governments. And so God, speaking through the prophet Samuel, had nothing good to say about government, which I thought was interesting. As I studied this and reflected back on it, uh, I was like, oh yeah, it's interesting in that discussion, God didn't have one positive thing to say about them wanting a, a king and a government like the rest of the nations. And this is very noteworthy. In the creator's perspective, it is better to be, and, and pay attention, pay attention to what I'm about to say. In the creator's perspective, which the creator has infinite perspective, the creator sees everything where we always just see a little piece of something. In the creator's perspective, it is better to be enlightened enough to not need government. So what we really need in our discussions about which government is the best, you know, is, is communist government the best? Is, is a, uh, you know, like a, like a constitutional republic the best, a democracy the best? 
And all of those, why do we not ask the possibility, is it best to not have government? Or if we do, extremely small government that is extremely limited in our life. You see, the prophet Samuel, when the people wanted the king and the government, he he. He, he tried to persuade them that you guys are in a better place not having that government right now. But they just wanted to be like everybody else. That was their big spiritual choice. We, reason. Oh, we have this huge spiritual reason why we want this king, because we want to be like the other nations. That's not a good platform for your decision making. But that was the way they made their decision. But in the creator's perspective, it is better that we focus on being enlightened enough to not need government. And that's the thing I want to encourage you to do. In a political community, the best way to approach it and to have a just society, if you really want a just society, you don't need all these laws. You really don't. You don't need all these laws. You don't need government watching your shoulder. What you really need is to focus on helping people become spiritually enlightened. And once people are spiritually enlightened, then they will love their neighbors themselves. And as they love their neighbors themselves, then they will make the right choices in society. That's a benefit to society. But the reason why we have all these laws we have now, an incredible amount of laws, why we have all this, these taxes we have to pay, why we have big government looking over our shoulder. The reason is because we are so spiritually darkened that we make stupid and evil choices every day that harms our neighbor. And so we have to be externally forced into doing what's right. So we don't need more laws. We don't need better laws. We don't need a better form of government. What we really need is to become spiritually enlightened so that we learn to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, the fact is that Israel got their way and the kingly lines in Israel were a disaster. Uh, recently, I've been going through a study of the books of first and second Kings and the Old Testament of the Bible. It's not fun reading. I frankly can't stand first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. It's, it's quite boring reading. I, I mean, when I read them, I try to get into the deeper meanings of what's going on. When I read scriptures, and I read various scriptures. I read the Bible. I read Bhagavad Gita, the, uh, you know, various ones, the Upanishads and stuff. But I, I read them. But I always look when I read the Bible, I read to see, okay, what's the literal meaning of what's going on right now? But also look at the deeper mystical meaning behind it as well. You know, so um, like when the prophet Isaiah talks about ascending the mountain of the Lord, I don't think of how can I go to a physical mountain and ascend to God? No, I think in meditation, how do I climb that mountain in silence and meditation and my soul ascend to God? So, you know, it's those kinds of things, but I have been studying first and second Kings recently. And as I study it, I realize and I haven't been studying it for this podcast, I've just been studying those two books just because I'm like, it's been a while since I read them, I think I'll refresh myself a bit. 
And uh, I recognize that the kingly lines in Israel and Judah, because Israel had split into two nations at this point in our history, they split into the northern region of Israel, the southern region of Judah, and they were disastrous. I mean, there was a couple good kings in those lines, but for the most part, it was disastrous. These kings were horrible, <laughs> evil. I mean, completely evil people that did evil things. And uh, and Israel got their way, and it just turned out to be a complete disaster setting up this government they had set up. Now, King David is seen as the prototype of what a king should be. Things were good in his day, uh, so everything is compared to King David. So when a, a king did right, it says in the book of First and Second Kings, there's a commentary that says he walked in in the ways of King David. Or if the king was a disaster, they said he did not walk in the ways of King David. So King David is seen as the prototype of what a king should be. However, one thing to note about King David is he was constantly at war. Now, there came a time when King David wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem, and God said, no, I'm not letting you build a temple in Jerusalem. Why did God say that? He's, God told David, you cannot, through the prophet Nathan, he said, David, I will not allow you to build a temple because you are a man of war and bloodshed. So God wouldn't allow it. Now, God did uh, allow David's son Solomon to build the temple, and Solomon was a man who did not go to war ever in his kingship. Uh, and, and God told David, I'll, I'll let your son do it, but you're not doing it because you are a man of bloodshed. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, we're really, if we pay attention, we get God's perspective in the scriptures and God's not a fan of government and God's not a fan of war. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, God is about mercy and grace um, and about us loving each other without having to be controlled to do it. And I just want to say, this is very interesting and it should not be overlooked. God's conversation through the prophet Nathan with, with, uh, David, you can't build the temple because you are a man of war and bloodshed. I mean, wow, that's significant. That's huge. And when we're like, hey, you know, this is great, you know, that Ukraine's fighting back against Russia and we should do all this with Russia and World War II and like how, man, how great we were in World War II. War's never great. I hate to break it to you, but war is never great. If we see a nation go to war or we're at a point where war is the best choice at the moment, then we're screwed. We're in a really bad place if war becomes a good option in a given moment. Well, eventually the kingly line in Israel died out and collapsed and Israel was taken over by the Roman Empire. And you can get into the history of why that was. So that's a, a look at government from Israel's perspective and as it, as it evolved. Now let's look at Jesus and political power. Jesus and political power. Imagine how dumbfounded the people were in Jesus' day. They were expecting a Messiah who would powerfully and dramatically overthrow the Roman Empire. I mean, you know, the Jewish people, they were sick and tired of the Roman Empire being pushed around and oppressed and all of the craziness that revolved around the empire. And they were expecting a Messiah who would 
dramatically overthrow the empire, and Jesus refused to do it. Jesus refused to overthrow the empire. He could have, but he didn't. In fact, Jesus did quite the opposite. He actually submitted to the cruel and unjust crucifixion that the empire imposed on him and even told the soldiers, I could take you all out right now with legions of angels, but I'm not going to do it. Jesus was the complete opposite of what they were expecting. He had the ability to, but refused to, by the way, that's called meekness. Meekness means controlled strength, means you have the strength to do something, but you're not going to do it because it's not the right thing to do. So Jesus refused to overthrow the empire and, and actually submitted to its cruel crucifixion. This was his political statement. In 1 Corinthians, in the first letter to the church in Corinth, St. Paul says that the cross is God's wisdom on full display. The cross is God's wisdom on full display. You're like, how, how can that be? Because in God's wisdom, the best way to break the cycles of violence is to stop the violence. When Jesus was being arrested, one of his disciples, Peter, picks up a sword, cuts off the soldier's ear. What does Jesus say to him? He says, put down your sword, Peter, because those who live by the sword die by the sword. In other words, war and violence just creates more war and violence. And back and forth, and back and forth we go. And in the wisdom of the cross, God shows us that the best way to live as humans is the way of submission, love, meekness, and humility. And if we just lay down our weapons and in humility love our enemies, will break the maddening cycle of violence in the world. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In his day, in Jesus' day, the Roman Empire had a belief that those who will inherit and take over the earth are the most powerful and the mightiest. And Jesus says, nope, the earth is going to be inherited by those who are the most humble, who are meek. And the way to do away with evil is with good. The way to end war is to lay down your sword. And the way to victory is through ultimate defeat. The way to happiness is through the sorrow of breaking our attachments to the world. Jesus took the whole thing, the whole philosophies that humanity lives by and turned them on their ear. So Jesus turns the whole thing upside down. He showed us how backwards we really are. Jesus refused to cooperate with the empire, but he also refused to overthrow it. So get that in your mind. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, claim to be his follower, you have to realize that your master, your guru, your spiritual master, Jesus, refused to cooperate with the empire but he also refused to overthrow it. He knew that love was the ultimate weapon and that the government will collapse on itself. 
You see, to battle against the government is to strengthen it. To live outside of the government causes it to collapse because it has no more power. <clears throat> it's interesting when you study the collapse of the Roman Empire. It collapsed for various reasons. I've mentioned this before. One of the reasons it collapsed is because you have all these invaders, uh, the barbarians and, and Genghis Khan and different ones, you know, chipping away at it through constantly attacking it. It also collapsed because so many people got on welfare and not going to work anymore that it collapsed financially because of that. But one of the main reasons that the empire collapsed is that millions of people became disciples of Jesus. And they believed, the early Christians believed that in order to be a Christian, in order to be a disciple of Jesus, is to refuse to cooperate with the government. So after people were converted and became disciples of Jesus, they stopped cooperating with the empire. Then they were willing to die and become martyrs rather than cooperate with the empire. So as a result, the empire lost its power base and collapsed on itself. So you don't have to make the government collapse. You just step back and then just watch it collapse on itself. Jesus, by the way, also fought against becoming a ruler. The people wanted him to become a ruler, and Jesus fought against that. He said that, messiah, that his messianic power came in the form of service to others. He said, I came to be a servant to all. When John and James, two of his disciples, wanted to wield political power, and he said, let's call fire down from heaven and tell us if we're going to, we want to, be on the right hand of God and all those political power statements, Jesus told them, do not be like the rulers of this world. <clears throat> Rather, one should become a servant of all and should lay down their life for others and love and care for their enemies. Now, we also often talk about loving our enemies, which Jesus said, but he also was more graphic about it. Jesus didn't just say, love your enemy in some vague, weird way, but rather love your enemy in such a way that if your enemy is hungry, invite your enemy over to your house, have dinner with them, feed your enemy. If they're thirsty, give drink to your enemy. That means you have to walk up in order to, by the way, think about this, in order to give food and drink to your enemy, you actually have to physically walk up and be face to face with them. You have to be one foot away from them so you can reach out to give them the food and water. Yeah. In other words, you got to get real relational with your enemy. You see, this is the true nature of political power. God being the creator of the entire universe, God being the creator of all that is, could be a tyrant. And there would be nothing we could do about it. But instead, God is a loving father who shows us the way of love and mercy, even to those who hate us. Think of all the people that hate God, and yet God makes sure they're fed every day, that they have sunshine, that they have rain. Yeah, that's how we're to be. So that's a look at Israel's history a bit, a little bit of <clears throat> Jesus teaching. Now let's look in the early Christian community. Let's get in. So what, what does St. Paul and St. Peter and others say in the early Christian community? Jesus is gone from the earth, and now the apostles are there in leadership. What are they saying about 
political community. In the Roman Empire, which, by the way, was one of the largest and most vicious empires in history, you cannot ignore the early Christian community. What was their view on politics? Well, here's a few points worth noting. First of all, they taught, and St. Paul and Peter taught us, pray for those in authority. Now, as an Orthodox anarchist, I, I pray from time to time, not probably could do it more, but for the governor of Oregon, for president, for Congress stuff, that they'll just make the choices that's just and right. And you may say, seriously, pray for those in authority. Why? Well, St. Peter says, pray for those in authority so that we can enjoy a peaceful and tranquil life. In other words, St. Peter was saying, currently under Nero, we are not enjoying a peaceful and tranquil life. So pray that God will influence Nero to make better choices politically so we can enjoy a peaceful and tranquil life. The Roman Empire was one of peace through violence. It was constantly at war, and St. Peter said that prayer is the key to see the conversion of the heart of the political leaders. Take note of that. Please, please notice that. Peter did not wish for a conversion of the system. Peter didn't want to see a conversion or a, 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 an editing, so to speak, of the political system to a different system. He didn't say, well, ah, oh, man, you know, this democracy, this constitutional republic isn't working out. Let's switch to communism. Maybe it'll be better. No, Peter didn't wish for a conversion and a change of the system, but rather a conversion of the heart of those in authority. St. Peter said, we don't need a different form of government in the Roman Empire. What we need is a conversion of Nero's heart. Because if Nero comes to be a person of love and mercy, then he'll create laws that are loving and merciful. So pray for those in authority. That's the early Christian community's attitude towards political community. Uh, second, obey and submit to political authorities who are in alignment with God. So let me say that again. Obey and submit to political authorities who are in alignment with God. If a government and its leaders are themselves spiritually enlightened, then submit to them as they are leading you into goodness. Pay taxes to them, follow their laws, cooperate with them. That's the one side of the coin. Now, the flip side of the coin is that Peter and Paul and others taught in the early Christian community is resist and refuse to cooperate with a government that is out of bounds. You know, St. Peter and St. John, they were arrested because they weren't following the Roman laws. They were teaching in Jesus' name and all these things. And the government leader says, stop doing that or we're going to kill you. And St. Peter says, well, since you're not in alignment with God, and since you're contradicting the creator, then we're, we're frankly just going to refuse uh, to cooperate. And we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. That's why so many early Christians were martyred by the Roman government, because they just like, nah, we're not following the laws because your laws are unjust. And we, we follow something bigger than your unjust laws. We follow the creator and his just universal natural laws. Now, there's a book of the Bible that has created so much controversy, and there's been so much false teaching around this book of the Bible. 
And that's the book we call Revelation or Apocalypse or the Revelation of St. John. St. John is exiled by the empire on this island for breaking laws of teaching in Jesus' name. And as he's on this island, he he's deep in meditation, it says on the Lord's Day. That means on Sunday. One Sunday, he's deep in meditation. He receives this vision, which we now know is the book of Revelation in the Bible. And in this vision, John sees a beast. That is the government, the empire. And the martyrs who are protesting against this beast or against the empire by are becoming martyrs due to their refusal to cooperate with the empire. And by the way, if you wanted just a quick snapshot of what the book of Revelation is really about, it's about the Roman Empire and that it is this beast on the sea of humanity and it's being destroyed by Jesus slowly and surely and it will collapse. And it did collapse. And that can apply to our own government. But as the empire kills these resistors, then it loses power over them and it loses taxpayers and on and on. John sees all of these things. And by the way, it's kind of strange because the, the empire killed millions of people. And when each one of them died, they were no longer taxpayers to the system. It's kind of like shooting yourself in the foot there a little bit. But over time, the Christians refused to cooperate and the empire weakened. And other groups and religious faiths began to be uncooperative and the empire lost its power. Now, the Desert Fathers, uh, there came a point, by the way, where Christians gained freedom in the empire in the fourth century and uh, through Emperor Constantine and some other things that went on. I don't want to get into right now. But yeah, the Christians gained freedom and there was a group of people who became monks called the Desert Fathers, and then there were some women as well who became the Desert Mothers. And after the Christians gained freedom, the Desert Fathers left the empire and went to the desert because they said the churches began to cooperate with the empire. And they said we should never cooperate with the empire as followers of Jesus. They said that the Desert Fathers, who I follow very, very closely, follow a lot of their practices in my own life, and I'm very well studied on the Desert Fathers. But they said that no disciple of Jesus Christ should be cooperating with the government, with the empire. This is a big deal. This is huge. And by the way, the reason... Now, engage with me on this one, because I'm going to create a point right now that may twist your brain a little bit. <laughs> But the reason why the government you are under has any power is because of the collective conscience mentally agreeing to that power. What I mean by that is, for example, in the United States, the reason why the U.S. government has any power is because the collective citizens of the U.S. mentally agree that that power exists. If every citizen, if tomorrow every citizen just stopped believing the government had any power, it would collapse because people would just say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't actually exist. It only exists in our mind. I mean, for example, I mean, other than your mental agreement that there is a government that has power, what power? It doesn't have physical power. You say, well, they can kill me. Yeah, they can kill me, but the martyrs in the Roman Empire said, fine, kill me. 
but you can't harm my soul. In fact, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, rather fear him who can take the body and soul and cast them into hell. So in other words, the government has extremely limited power. It only has the ability to kill your body. It doesn't have the body to, it doesn't have the ability to take your joy. It doesn't have the ability to take your peace. It doesn't have the ability to take your soul. It doesn't have that ability. So if tomorrow everybody just woke up and said, you know what, we're no longer mentally agreeing to this government's power, it would collapse. It's that easy. Now, it would be a violent collapse, and it would be a slow collapse. The Roman Empire didn't collapse overnight, but it would collapse and disappear nonetheless. And then the fourth thing uh, I want to get into when I, in talking about this is what the Buddhists and Hindus have to teach us. They have much to teach us, by the way. And the Buddhists and Hindus and other mystics, including the Desert Fathers and the Taoists, and other ones, they, they talk about inner peace. But they don't talk about inner peace as something to achieve. And I'm not going to get in a big discussion because we're running long on this episode. So you have to study on your own. I can't <laughs> give thousands of years of commentary in one moment. But inner peace is not something you achieve. The Hindu and Buddhist masters teach us it's something that you experience as you become one with God, one with the creator, one with the Tao, however they say it. But as you become one with that spiritual infinite spirit from which everything comes, the Christians call God, as you do that, you experience this inner peace and this universal love towards others. So what they teach us is that as, as humans, we are at war with ourselves. And we know that because you experience that war. You ever, you know, those moments we have almost every day where we're at war with ourselves inside. We're at unrest. And as St. Augustine said, we are, we are only at rest when we rest in you. Oh God. Can't find rest any other way. For your soul. And so the Buddhist and Hindu masters, the Taoists and stuff teach that, that as you, the problem is we're at war with ourselves. We're attached to false things. And so as we come to unity within ourselves and unity within, with God, then we experience peace and again, universal love for others. So really, again, it's not about changing political systems. It's not about renewal of the current political system. It's not about getting Republicans or Democrats into office or whatever. It's about humanity experiencing unity with God and with itself. Because when Adam and Eve, in the story of the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were at unity with God. They were at unity with each other and they were at unity with themselves. And what happened after they fell? They were no longer in unity with God, no longer in unity with each other and no longer in unity within themselves. And it created war and conflict. So there you go. I know this is a big overview, but that's the way it is. We'll get into more details next week. But this is the overview, and next week we're going to get into details of Chapter 8. You know, the fact is, to, we live in a world of Antifa and others who wish to silently 
control those who believe differently than they do. Rather, I mean violently. They wish to violently control those who believe differently than they do. We live with a government that is growing bigger and is far overreaching its boundaries. We should live in submission where it is proper, but resist and refuse to cooperate where that is necessary. For you see, the creator is our true leader, our father who can give us all good things. The government promises all kinds of things, but never delivers. Our heavenly father truly gives us all good things. So I encourage you, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Live your life without the need for government control. Love your neighbor. Do good to your enemies as you create a just society right where you are. You've been listening to Common Sense on Social Justice with your host, Michael Davis. A common sense and fresh perspective to creating justice where you are. Share your comments and questions with Michael by emailing sjcommonsense at gmail.com. That's sjcommonsense at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life.